The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Tonight, living history. The Warren Commission was put together by the American government to investigate the assassination of JFK. They were about to release its findings to the press. They had found three empty bullet shells in the sniper's nest of the purported assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. Three bullets, three shots, and three wounds, all originating from the sniper's nest in the Texas School Book Depository, and all fired by Lee Harvey Oswald or so the Warren Commission tells us. Now, according to the Warren Commission's first report, and there would soon be two, the first shot hit Kennedy low in the back, approximately between the shoulder blades. Now, as Kennedy leaned to the side after he was shot, he exposed Governor Connolly sitting directly in front of him in the limousine's jump sheet. The second shot hit Connolly. Now, this is all according to the Warren Commission. So now we have two shots. So they still have one more to go. Now, the third and final shot, according to the Warren Commission, hit Kennedy in the head, killing him. Now, that was a nice, neat, tidy package, except for James Tague, who courageously stepped forward to ask where his wound, the fourth wound, came from. Now, the Warren Commission had a major problem. How could they possibly explain only three empty shell casings from Oswald Gunn, but now four wounds? Hold it. Stop the presses. Hence, the Warren Commission virtually went back to the drawing board and came up with what we now know as the magic bullet theory. Now, the Warren Commission decided that there were still only three bullets, but now they cause four wounds. Are you ready for this, folks? The first now had missed the car completely and it hit a curb where it ricocheted and hit James Tague standing by the overpass watching the motorcade, bullet number one. The second bullet hit Kennedy in the back, but now Gerald Ford, who was commissioner member in 1964 before he became president and a decade later, decided that in order to present the evidence to coincide with the theory, he virtually moved the wound up from Kennedy's back to Kennedy's neck. I'm not making this up. This is historical fact. But wait, there's more. This bullet went on to go through Kennedy's back. It exited the front of Kennedy's neck in his throat. It went through Connolly in front of him, and in Connolly, this bullet broke a rib, broke a wrist, and then lodged itself in Connolly's leg. But when the bullet was found conveniently laying on a gurney at Parkland Hospital, it had no distortion to it at all, and there was no blood or tissue found on it. Uh-huh. I'm not kidding. Check the report out for yourself. Now, you know why it's called the magic bullet. The third and last bullet apparently hit Kennedy in the back of the head, where instead of exiting from the front of the head, where a bullet would normally exit if it was hit in the back of the head, it blew the back of his head off instead and caused Kennedy to thrust backward, not forward and to the left. In other words, the bullet went in the back of his head, did a U-turn, and came right back out the back of his head. Mm -hmm. Hands up all those who have been hunting and have seen wounds and bullets act like the ones described above. Tonight, the true courageous story of a Davy Plaza first-person eyewitness, James Tague. Tonight, living history of a young 27-year-old man whose beliefs and innocence were shattered that day in Davy Plaza. Tonight, we present that true life testament by none other than James Tague himself. Folks... It doesn't get any more real than this. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time for question. There is a time for answers. There is a time for challenge. There is a time to speak there is a time for change. There is a time for truth. 
JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com Now, tonight's show, James Tagg. What makes James Tagg's story so important and so riveting is the fact that a, it's true. He was a first-person witness right there in Daly Plaza that day also. But as I said at the outset, it is important because, because of his wound, the Warren Commission had to go virtually back to the drawing board to create this magic bullet scenario where they raised it up from the back of between Kennedy's shoulders approximately to the back of his neck so the bullet would go through the back of his neck, exit through the, his throat, into Governor Colony in front of him. It would create seven wounds. It would break a rib. It would break a wrist. And then it would come out pristine. They would find it just lying there in Parkland Hospital on a gurney. Absolutely pristine. There was no distortion to the bullet whatsoever. And no blood and no tissue on this bullet. And they expect us to swallow this story. And I put story, of course, in quotation marks. Unbelievable. Just completely Unbelievable. Tonight we have James Tague's story, and uh, it is a riveting one. Absolutely riveting. Without further ado, I'm just queuing up James Tague's interview. I will play it right away. James Tague. Real? Hi, it's James there, please. This is James. Hi, James. It's Brent Holland from Canada. How are you? Oh, yeah. Just wondering, have you got a few minutes now, my friend? We can record the uh, conversation? Yeah, let me, turn, let me turn the TV off here. Maybe we can start off and just go right into it right away. November 22nd, 1963. And how did you begin your day, sir? Uh, I was at work. Uh, it was just a dreary old day. It was trying to rain, cloudy, dreary old day. And it finally cleared up about 10, 30, 11. What made you want to go down to Daly Plaza? The reason I was going down to uh, town in Dallas that day was I had a lunch and day with a cute redhead that uh, we'd made the date uh, the day before. And uh, I got stopped in traffic just as I was going under the trip on the pass. And what made you want to get out of the car and go and see the motorcade, sir? Traffic was stopped in front of me, and uh, I got out of the car to see what uh, going on. I thought maybe it had been an auto accident or something. Uh, a couple cars ahead of me, the guy was standing out of the car, uh, halfway out of the car, just leaning against the car door. And I walked uh, four or five steps to, to the front of the triple underpass where I could see what was going on. And what did you see there, sir? I noticed a crowd up around the uh, school book depository. And at that time, I remembered reading about the president going to be in town today. At that same time, I saw this car come through the crowd with flags on the fenders, which reminded me that I had read about the president being in town. Did you see the president at all? Was he waving? The more I stood, I could not see through the windshield because of the glare of the sun off the windshield. All I had was a frontal view from where I was. I see, sir. And... What happened next? Well, I heard what I thought was a pop of a firecracker, and the thought went through the line, what kind of an idiot would be throwing firecrackers with the president going by. And, of course, a lot of people heard the same sound talking a firecracker. Matter of fact, even Jackie throws a motorcycle backfire. Then there's the delay of uh, three seconds, and then the crack, crack of two rifle shots. One right after the other? One right after the other. Could you tell at all where the shots might be originating from? Not really. From where I stood, the line of fire could have been from anywhere of the Dalex building, the school book depository, or the, or the grassy. Uh, could have been any one of the three, because there's very little difference in uh, degrees from uh, those points. But nothing seemed to originate from the right of you over your shoulder. Your right shoulder, not your left shoulder. In other words, yeah, the opposite side right. of the grassy knoll. Well, anything coming from my right. It was all straight ahead or to the left. At what point did you realize, oh my God, they're shooting at the president? I did not realize they were shooting at the president. Being a uh, very brave person, I ducked behind the 
protection of the cement of the triple underpass after the third shot. The pictures that show me emerging from behind that concrete, and I'm standing there wondering what had happened. A man in a suit comes running up to me, I later learned was a, a deputy sheriff, Buddy Walters, and he asked me, he said, what happened? I said, I do not know. And together we walked across between Maine and Commerce. We crossed Maine and Elm to where a motorcycle policeman had stopped his motorcycle. And there's a man there sobbing. His head exploded. His head exploded. And the motorcycle policeman asked him who. And he said, it's the president's. And that was the first that I knew what had happened. Many people have said there was a smell of gunpowder in the air. Did you experience anything? Now, you got to remember, I'm over 300 feet from the school book depository. Yes, sir. I'm not close to where people thought they saw smoke coming out behind the fence or school book depository. I'm not close to that. I'm down with the triple underpass. What was it like when you were walking across the infield with Sheriff Buddy Walters? Was there mayhem? You had just described one person was crying. There were still people laying on the ground, people still stunned. Nobody knew what had happened, except the people that had been right there beside the car, which this gentleman said his head exploded, his head exploded. I forget his name for the moment, but anyway, those were the only ones that knew what had happened. Because the car was gone, there was no evidence left there. At what point did you realize that you were wounded also, sir? Uh... Buddy Walters, while we're standing there, after the man had said his head exploded, Buddy Walters looked up at me, and he said, well, you got blood on your face. And I reached up, and there was a couple, three drops of blood, and uh, I was called something stunk during the crack, crack of two rifle shots. During the emotions of that moment, I temporarily forgot that in trying to try to figure out what it was happening. I see. And did you notice that you were injured on the left cheek or the right cheek? Well, this has been one of those things that's been wrong for years. I've been trying to correct for years. I had a little scratch that was almost healed on my left cheek. And the photographer took a picture of me was showing just the left side of my face. Everybody jumped to the conclusion that's where I'd been hit. No, I was sprayed probably by concrete the right cheek. Jim Bishop, uh, in his book, was... Uh, uh, one of the first to correct that, and then Hal Weisberg got it right, and uh, writer after writer after writer after that kept on saying left cheek and showing pictures of left cheek. No, I was sprayed by probably uh, uh, the debris uh, in the right cheek is where I was hit. I see, sir. Did you have to go to the hospital for stitches or anything of that no, nature? No, no, it just broke the skin. Just broke the skin. It was nothing serious. It broke the skin, and uh, I took my handkerchief, wiped it off, and that was the end of that. Did any police officers take a report of your wound at all, sir? Well, the motorcycle policeman and uh, somebody else get a statement from you, and I stood there and, and looking at the timetable and looking back, I was there about at least 15 minutes, and I remembered my car was sitting in the street, and I got in it to move it. And by that time, that's 15 minutes after the shooting, people from all over town was pouring down into DV Plaza, and traffic was starting to get to be a mess. So I just drove to the police station and told them, told them that I'd been sent there to make a statement. And I don't know how long, probably stood around uh, 30, 40 minutes, they sent me to homicide, and I stood there for a few minutes. Finally, uh, Detective Rose came in to start taking my statement. And as we're sitting there, and about the end of what I had to say, uh, there was a little commotion at the door of homicide, and two policemen brought a guy in a little bit disabled. Detective Gus Rose asked the two policemen, says, uh, who's this? He said, well, this is the man that killed that policeman in uh, Oak Cliff. Later that evening on TV, and watching TV, I could see it was Lee Harvey Oswald is the one that brought in to the homicide and put in the office next to me. My goodness, you really were a first-person witness to history, weren't you, sir? Right there.
The rest of the day for you after you left the police station, you must have been a little bit traumatized. And I suspect the whole world was. A lot of our listeners right now, sir, are in their early 20s. And for them, the assassination is ancient history for them. I was wondering if you can try and describe what was going on in the country, in the news media, in the hours that followed that assassination. Well, I went back to uh, work and just in time to, uh, my boss was locking the place up. In Dallas, the whole town was locked up. There's no traffic on the streets. I think every business in town was locked up. That was Friday evening. Saturday was the same way. And on TV, the same things. Uh, they'd maybe have two or three hours of footage and then repeat the same footage over and over again for on probably 24, maybe 36 hours. Uh, nothing really new. And uh, I remember Sunday morning, uh, I knew there was a newsstand downtown, and I had my radio on. I went down to get a paper. I wanted to see what the rest of the country was thinking about Dallas. I wanted to get a New York paper and an L.A. paper. And as I was nearing downtown, I was listening to him uh, transfer Oswald, and uh, that's when uh, Ruby shot him. I was in my car. I think I forgot to get my newspapers. As far as Dallas, Dallas was shut down. Sir, when you heard the news that Oswald had been assassinated also only two days later, were there any thoughts going through your head at all? Well, yeah, I, I knew Jack Ruby. And oh. I knew that this is something that he was one of these guys that reacted to things on the top of a hat. And I thought, well, that's something they would do. And later... Later, in talking to Jim Lavelle, who was handcuffed to him at the time, verified my thoughts that I uh, really thought he'd be a hero by killing Oswald. He thought that uh, that's something that the whole world would uh, think that he did the right thing and he was a hero. That's a different story altogether. Well, we can go into that also if you want, sir. I know you also went through the missile crisis. Can you describe that also for the folks that are listening again in their early 20s? Well, the Cuban Missile Crisis? It was a year previous. Yeah, I didn't give it much weight. I was aware of it and something I cared about, but I didn't give it much weight. What were your thoughts on President Kennedy before the assassination? Uh, I was neutral on uh, Kennedy. I had uh, no thoughts about him whatsoever, one way or the other. Uh, of course, the story, my story, was not really about being there. That was just being an accident. It was the fact that the, the missed shot was covered up until the next June. Can we go into that right now then, sir? Why the shot was covered up and the whole Warren report, the first one and then the second one? I've been following the newspapers and uh, except for a little tiny ad showing where a bullet hit the curb on a Sunday, 24th of November, there was no news, nothing about a missed shot. And of course, I heard bullet hit in front of him and sprayed with the debris. I figured, well, it'd be something, nothing. And then on June the 5th of 1964, I read where the Warren Commission was folding the doors and sending people home. Their conclusion was going to be the first shot hit Kennedy, the second one Conway, and the third one Kennedy. I was talking to a man at work. At the time, I was an automobile salesman at the time. Somebody, a customer had bought his car, he was in the shop. And I was telling him, I said, hey, there was one shot for a while. He, the rest time, there were a few people I'd say that to. They wouldn't believe me. He says, you know, we got a new cub reporter on the paper. He says, I'm going to call him and, and tell him about you, and he needs to talk to you. And he says, I'm going on vacation. He says, here's the phone number. I call him. Be sure and call him and tell him what you've been telling me. I did is Jim Lair, same Jim Lair that McGuire that report. He came out this early in the morning, mm -hmm. and I told him this what I was telling you. I said, "Now, do not use my name." He said, "Well, I won't, because at that time, any time I told somebody what happened, it's not a believable story because there hadn't been anything in the papers." Anyway, Jim put the story on the wire services. I had no more than done that, and he called me back, and he said, uh, "Jim, he says they're calling me from Washington." And and every place else, and they want to know who you are. And he said, well, I'm going to have to tell them. I said, well, Jim, that's fine. Just don't use my name in the local paper. And the local paper had not come out yet. And so anyway, uh, he did. 
looking back in history of documents, the FBI was in Jim Larry's office at four that afternoon interviewing him about me, and that was the first where they started to, I don't know what the word would be, to uh, deflate what I had to say. Discredit, sir? Discredit is the word. J. Lee Rankin, who was chief counsel for the Warren Commission, did pick up on it, and there was two assistant U.S. attorneys here in Dallas that had known about the missed shot and wondering themselves why the Warren Commission hadn't gone into it. They got the pictures and sent to a ranking of the Warren Commission where the bullet hit the curb. People had seen debris fly, sparks fly, and there was pictures taken, and all that came out. Now I was called to testify on the 23rd of July. And the most important part of the story one must know is that Rankin asked Jake Hoover of the FBI twice during that period between June the 5th and July the 23rd to go find where that bullet had hit the curb. And Hoover reported back two times to the Warren Commission, could not find it. But we have, not my position, where he had sent a memo to the Dallas office on the 5th, that same day, to go get the pictures that were taken of the curb. So they knew, but he was denying it to the Warren Commission. So I testified on the 23rd. Buddy Walters testified, a couple others, and the pictures were there. Sure enough, it was a missed shot. Then the next day, the 24th, the FBI says, oh, we found where that bullet hit the curb. Going back, on the 15th of December, the FBI had interviewed me. That's at 63. And this interview was forwarded by the FBI to the Warren Commission. And you got to remember that the main workers of the Warren Commission were the 15 lawyers, not the seven figureheads. The 15 lawyers did not really start doing any work until after the Jack Ruby trial, which ended the end of February. The real work on the Warren Commission started the end of February, and it was only given 90 days, which had to be extended, to finish the work, which they couldn't do. But anyway, in that interim, the seven men who were the figureheads, I'm talking about Ford and Russell and that bunch, they did do some interviewing. So Warren went to Jackie Kennedy's house with a stenographer, took her testimony. This FBI interview was in the possession of the seven at that time. And they asked one of them, asked the Secret Service agent Soros what he knew about a missed shot. And Soros reported back, and he'd ask around one of the Secret Service agents if they knew anything they missed shot, and none of them knew anything. And Soros reported back to the Warren Commission, the FBI report that made December shoved aside. The information had been there, shoved aside. And it's made me think, I wonder how much information was handled such a way as just put aside and never really looked at it. Sir, were you ever threatened because you came forward, or have you been subsequently threatened? No, I was never threatened. I know uh, uh, when I testified right in the middle of the testimony, later there was the uh, attorney that uh, took my testimony. He asked me right in the middle of my testimony, he said, I understand you went back there and took pictures. I said, huh? He repeated, he said, I understand you went back there and took pictures. I said, I didn't know anybody knew anything about that. My parents lived near the Indy 500. I took some pictures to show my parents. There was really nothing to it. Sir, how old were you in 1963? I just turned 27. Just a young man. Now, you had mentioned the FBI. The FBI interviewed mid-December, 63. I see. Okay. And, they, and after I'd talked to Lair, they interviewed Lair. That was uh, May, the, excuse me, June the 5th of 1964. Harold Weisberg was a very close friend of yours. And indeed, folks, just to let you know who Harold Weisberg was, he was one of the initial researchers. And he is extremely important in the JFK assassination because he kept it alive. He did incredible research. One of his famous books is called Whitewash. And I urge you all to go out and get it. It's an incredible, incredible detailed investigation of the whole assassination. Harold is no longer with us, unfortunately, but he was one of the pioneers, if you will, of the assassination research, keeping it alive. That's correct. 
don't forget, folks, no internet in those days. Alvin and I became friends. Uh, yes, sir. Probably a year after the assassination. I see. So you got to remember that uh, the first year after the assassination, the uh, Warren report was accepted as a great piece of work. Everybody agreed with it because they've done a great job. And then people like Weisberg started picking it apart. And Harold called me for some information, and I was talking to him just like I'm talking to you. And from that conversation, Harold and I became very close friends. He spent uh, time at my house in Dallas uh, a week there one time, and I'd spent time in Frederick, Maryland at his house. One of the things that Harold did is uh, when he'd run across the uh, a document that anything concerned me or something they thought I would be interested in in the FBI statements that he'd uh, got when he won his case, Freedom of Information Act, against the FBI, which uh, I've got FBI documents you wouldn't believe. Some of them's never been made public yet, which I plan to make public in my new book. But anyway, yes, Harold and I were friends for probably over 30 years before he died. And uh, very close friends shared a lot of a lot of information. Sir, could we talk about two things then? Could we talk about your new book? I would like you to plug it very much, and also I would really like to talk at length about your friendship with Harold Weisberg because I think it's important that his memory is documented and made available to all those who are interested in continuing the research. But first, could we start about plugging your new book and when you might see a release well, date? On the anniversary, 40th anniversary of the assassination, I came out with my first book, Truth with Hell, Why We'll Never Know the Truth About Kennedy Assassination. And that was just about the things I'm talking to. No uh, plots in there or anything. Thing like that, just talking, just talking about my dealings with the FBI and what happened, and my thoughts and the things that you and I have been talking about thus far. My new book, fortunate living in Dallas most of my life, I've been privileged to talk to a lot of people that really were never interviewed by the FBI or the Warren Commission, and a lot of information and putting things together. We have known the truth for years, and nobody's really. Oh, there's been a couple books that's, that's named what was behind the assassination, but nobody's really put any weight into it. And uh, my new book is not about where uh, shooters are located or anything like that. It's about uh, the politics of why Kennedy was assassinated and who was behind it and why. And uh, my book, I started to come out with it last November, but then we had our elections going on, and I, I said, no, I'm going to hold off. And if my health holds up, I might just hold on to it to the 50th anniversary to come out with it. It's time the American people knew the truth. And I'm probably, and I, I hope I'm not boasting, but I'm probably the only person as close to everything that was going on as anybody. And that's in being there in Dealey Plaza and testimony for the Warren Commission. Matter of fact, they had to redo the Warren Commission after my testimony. Mm -hmm. The fact that I talked to a lot of people that were never really interviewed by anybody. You know, I've, I've, I've pretty much got the story. I'm 99.9% sure. <clears throat> I'm 100% sure. And I can, I can say what was behind it all and, and uh, the people, their names, and why Kennedy was killed. Can you give us any information as to why you feel Kennedy was killed? Just any speculation without giving too much of your book away? Well, I'll give you one thing. There was a, and I've got everybody interviewed. I've got about 50 different interviews on tape. Clint Marcus's house the evening before the assassination, there was a meeting there in which I've got interviews with the maid, the butler, two other people that were there. And they all say the same thing. You had J. Edgar Hoover there. Nixon was there. You had some other important people. And Johnson came in late, and they all had a little meeting in, a, in one room, which went on into the early morning. And uh, one of the people there was Madeline Brown, who was uh, Lyndon Johnson's mistress. A lot of people don't know that, but that became public after Lyndon died. And when the meeting was over, Lyndon came out of the meeting and walked over to Madeline, his mistress, and he says, those Kennedys are never going to embarrass me again. Mm. 
talk about ominous. I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you that in a little bit of tidbit to give you an idea. The rest of the book is backing up that statement. Wow. That's going to be explosive, sir, and I do hope you let me know when that comes out, and I'll have you back on, and we'll talk about that as well and promote it. I think it's important. Harold Weisberg, can we speak a little bit about him and your close friendship yes. with him and the type of man I don't he was? Think Harold, Harold, I don't think Harold ever typed one word that he didn't believe 100% in. He, uh, uh, Harold, uh, Harold uh, got me involved. And a couple of things, a lot of people don't know it, but uh, uh, one of his Freedom of Information actions, he asked me to join him, I joined him in it. Give you a good example, uh, when they finally cut the curb out of the street, about an 18-inch section of the curb out of the street with a bullet in the head, had the curb analyzed in the FBI laboratory. And it came back, they found traces of lead and animal but no traces of copper. And he believed that the bullets used by Oswald were... Uh, copper jacketed bullets. Thus, his uh, idea was, since there was no copper, this was a fragment that had hit the curb. This was all done by spectrographic analysis. Now, the thing about a spectrographic analysis, it's been found to be junk science. Worthless. Harold filed suit to get a copy of the spectrographic analysis of that curb that the FBI did. And this drug on for months and months and months. And when it looked like the judge was going to turn it over Harold to get a outside examination of it, the FBI lawyer says, well, this paper-thin x-ray-like material had been uh, thrown away or lost to make room in storage. So we never, never did get that spectrographic analysis. But the, the interesting thing was that this little paper-thin uh, analysis uh, called a spectrographic analysis, the lawyer said it had been thrown away. sort of funny that something as important as evidence in the assassination of Kennedy would be thrown away. We know the answers to why the uh, bullet that hit Kennedy in the back was raised to the neck. And we know why I've got copies of how that happened, which I'm not ready to air. Okay. But uh, that was... Uh, information that was uh, falsified, and a lot of people don't know that none of the pictures that were taken during the autopsy were in the uh, Warren report. It was just drawings, and the drawings were misrepresented. I agree with falsifications. The main thing is that to get the uh, bullet to hit two men to go through Kennedy and and then hit Kyrie, they had to raise the uh, back injury, which was four and a half inches below the collar. They had to raise it up back, up into the neck. And that was falsified information. There's been so many books out that had so much misinformation in them that right now it's hard for people to really know what to believe. And that's the reason I'm writing my book. I, to get the truth out to where all these things can be explained, all the answers are there. Sir, at the beginning of the interview, you had mentioned that you had heard three shots. Do you now believe that there could have been more than three shots? And perhaps some well, of them... Known, we, we have known such as a Pruder film came out, there's four shots. There's four shots. Nobody wants to... Well, if you look at frame 313 and the frames before that, 313 shows Kennedy being hit from the front. His head flies back so violently... His shoulders are thrown back against the seat of the car. But if you back up a little bit, before he is hit from the front, in a microsecond before that, his head starts forward. He'd hit, been hit in the back of the head a microsecond before the front shot. And it's right there. If you want to slow down the Zapruder film and look at it, it's right there for you to see. There were two shots almost simultaneous. I heard three shots. And what I'm saying is, in those three shots, there was also a four-shot simultaneous with another shot. Were you asked to testify before the House Select Committee on Assassins in the 1970s? No. They no, never, they they never called you. The CIA controlled what came out in that. Matter of fact, uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, when I filed to see what the CIA had on me, I get three blank pages. Wow. How do you feel about the government that's in place right now, sir? Oh, Obama, and um, do you think it's a legitimate government, or do you think perhaps it's still well, bolstered up from those days? I think, 
I think the same thing that's happened, that happened to Kennedy, the public loved Kennedy. The power in Washington hated his guts. To give you an example, Kennedy had on his desk papers to go to Congress to strip the CIA of all their power. They changed the banking rules, they changed agriculture, they changed all those. He was changing everything. We've got that going on in Washington right now. And I think that Obama is going to wind up the same way as Kennedy. The public, he's still got a 50% of the public likes him. But I think the wheels, the power in Washington, has got just about all that they can take of Obama. It took two years of planning to get Kennedy, and I think the plans are already in the works on Obama. That's strong for me to say, but that's my belief. Whoa, that is very ominous, sir. It's funny, you know, because Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service agent on Kennedy's detail. Yes, I know Abraham. Oh, do you? Oh, wonderful man. Wonderful man. And he was saying that he is very concerned over the safety of Obama, too. When you say that, it kind of just verifies that and confirms that, that there is a real danger against, uh, God forbid, another calamity taking place that took place in 1963. My God, I hope that doesn't happen again. Harold Weisberg, what do you think his lasting legacy should be? Harold, Harold was great American. He's an all-American hero. And uh, I, he's not the type of hero that Washington likes. But he is an all-American hero. And See, Harold was an OSS in World War II, that's the same thing as CIA today. And then after the war, he was a Senate investigator. So Harold had a pretty strong background. And then he, after the assassination, when he purchased, excuse me, the full 26 volumes of the Warren Commission, uh, being a Washington insider, he started asking some of his old friends about this and that, and everybody clammed up. And this is what led for him to file on the Freedom of Information Act to get the FBI documents concerning the Kennedy uh, assassination. I see, and sir. It took years to get it. And he, years, but he finally got it. And uh, in his basement, he had over 60 four-drawer filing cabinets full of FBI documents. And uh, Hood College was right there next to... Uh, Went there in uh, Frederick, Maryland, and volunteers from college helped him sort that out. Maybe some things would need to be in several different places to keep everything in order. But Harold knew more than anybody else about the assassination of Kennedy. He was an incredible man, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Well, he, he, some people took him as sort of grouchy, but he wasn't grouchy. He was just stating things like they were, but he, he was factual. He was straightforward and no nonsense. That's right. That was Harold. Straightforward, told it like it was, and uh, I'm trying to remember, having seen him old, trying to remember one book, uh, got about a thousand pages, it was hand-typed. Remember, he had a hard time getting his books published. Nobody wanted to publish them. You mentioned whitewash a while ago. Uh, he went to several uh, publishers, and nobody wanted to touch it. That was uh, the way America was back then. It was a uh, get along with uh, get along with Washington. Don't upset the apple cart. I was going to ask you, sir. Do you think the press is still much in the get along with Washington mode, or do you think they have changed more? And- that's been obvious. That's been obvious with Obama. It's been obvious. Uh, you know. Most of the people right now in the, the growing news station, because they pretty much say it like it is, or, or say it when nobody else will say it, and that's Fox News. Fox, uh, you know, they're the growing uh, uh, news station. But when, when somebody else won't print anything or say anything, Fox News will. Do you feel, sir, with the new president in office, Obama? that it may lead to disclosure of the Kennedy assassination, full disclosure, finally? No, no, that's going to be covered up. Well, let me tell you one thing about, there's a lot of people that knew what was going to happen. Well, maybe not a lot knew what was going to happen, but 
a lot of people afterwards knew what had happened. And to make everything public would have made this country look like a banana republic. And for the sake of the country, it was one man, one night, and us go on with life. The interest. To be honest, it might have been the best thing to happen at that time. Because if you try to imagine uh, a week after assassination walking into the White House, the Oval Office, and arresting somebody, can you imagine what this country would look like? It would have imploded. Completely imploded. Yeah, just would have collapsed on itself. And I'm speaking mainly Joe Ford. Joe Ford knew what had happened. And Joe Ford probably, and he did some things that were not really legal, not right, to cover up the assassination and how it happened. And I think Joe Ford was a good good man, but I think he did just thinking he was doing the right thing for the good of the country. I see. Probably a lot of other people... That's probably how we arrived at the way the assassination and the findings ended up. Sir, I'm going to ask you to speculate now. Now, I know this is not an area of your expertise, but do you feel somehow the Martin Luther King assassination and the Bobby Kennedy assassination were also part and parcel of the same elements in Washington, getting rid of... Sure they were. Sure they were. There's no doubt about it. Okay, sir. You know, well, let, let me give you just a private thought. Sure, uh, please. Bobby Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy uh, was killed by Sir Hans, Sir Hans. People saw him. The psychiatrist that examined Sir Hans, Sir Hans, not one of them, says Sir Hans, Sir Hans has any shooting Bobby Kennedy. Then you go back and you put together the fact that during that period of time, the 50s and the 60s, the CIA was deep in the studying mind control. Then you add the fact that Oswald was seen 70 seconds after the assassination, four floors down from the sixth floor, buying a Coca-Cola. And the two men that saw him there, Truly, who had managed the building, Marion Baker, motorcycle policeman, ran into the they were trying to fuck the shots that come from talk from the roof. Other two that saw them there, when they testified before the Warren Commission, both of them testified all those calm, cool, collected, was not out of breath. And this is 70 seconds after the assassination, after, after the uh, firing of the gun, the, the bullets. And uh, I retraced... Uh, we traced the steps for everybody running up the stairs and down the stairs and all that sort of thing in 70 seconds. I just cannot even imagine somebody in the four floors down calmly buying a Coca-Cola. And for all the other evidence, in spite of what you read, Oswald walked out of that building very calm and got on the bus. He wasn't moving very quick, so he got off of it and took a cab. Then, then I go back to Bobby Kennedy and there's so much evidence that Bobby was shot, had shots from behind. Saran, Saran shot him from the front. All these things tie together. And the cover-up, the cover-up of Kennedy assassination was so easy. So easy. There's one man that Bobby and, and uh, uh, both Kennedy brothers were going to uh, retire. And his mistress was the FBI. And that's J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. And everything that the Warren Commission got came across Hoover's desk. So that and tells you something right there. What, Hoover controlled what the Warren Commission got. So you start putting all this stuff together. It's like working, working a big crossword puzzle. Putting all these little fragments of the puzzle together, and you come up with the answer. We've known all these answers. You've heard people talk about what I've been talking about for years, but not coming out and putting it all together. Sir, you saw the movie JFK, I suspect, Oliver Stone's masterpiece. Do you feel that's a very good portrayal of the events that took place? I feel it is mostly credible. An actor played me in the movie. And 
I feel is when you at first when he came out and I first saw it, I thought, well, that's about sixty percent right. The rest is movie. And the more I see it, and the more I research, and the more I look into things, the more Stone tried to make a real, true movie. And I recommend everybody look at it and take it for the truth. There's some stuff there that you have to use to make a movie. But as far as the truth in there, uh, especially the man who played Colonel Prouty, uh, that's Mr. X in the movie, uh, that is one that these researchers need to really go back and look into. Prouty, Colonel Prouty, was, uh, was the one who would go between the CIA and the military in the Pentagon. And he was privileged to more information than any other human being. And he pretty much lays it out uh, in his book. I can't name the book at the moment. Pretty much lays out uh, uh, how it happened and, and the planning that went into it. And that's, I mean, that's a recommended reading for anybody. Folks, if you want to go to the www. website, Len Sanic has a show every week on the internet about the assassination, and he also sells the collected works of Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. And for sure, I'm going to have Len on talk about Mr. Prouty, sir. Are you going to go to the JFK Lancer? Symposium this year in Dallas? No, I'm not. I'm not going. I've had a medical problem come up. I'm pretty much a homebody anymore. I'm trying to finish up this book and get the fine details of it. And uh, uh, oh, I'll probably, I, I, I may go next year, the year after, but I've been enough times to uh, Lancer, uh, JFK Lancer, and uh, it's always interesting. And, uh, Deborah puts on a good program each year. She certainly does. Did Jim Garrison ever contact you, sir? Oh, I, that's a funny story. That when uh, he was investigating the Shaw story, uh, somebody told me he was trying to tie me into some of that and had two guys up there looking for him. No, I didn't ever, didn't ever know Garrison. Why do you think it's essential that people remember what took place all those years ago, November 22nd, 1963? You know, I was talking to several students at the university and they were saying, well, it happened and it's over with and there's nothing we can do about it. Why do you feel that that isn't the way people should look at the assassination? Why is it still important that we get the truth? Well, this, this, this was a story of corruption. This is a story of corruption. It's not a story of assassination. Well, it is assassination, but it's really a story of government corruption. He's been corrected. Uh, we got problems in Congress. Uh, what, what's the public view of Congress right now? 20% approval, something like that? We got big problems in Congress. We need to do something about it. And, uh, it just goes deep. This, this is something I could spend two days talking to you about. But I don't want to get started on it. I guess we're going to begin to wrap up. Is there any final statement that you'd like to make or any final words? You're addressing the whole student body of Canada right now. What would you like to say to them? Oh, I really don't have anything to say. I just... Uh, I did not allow this to upset my life. I had a family to raise and a career to follow. And, and during those all those years, I started collecting things on the assassination and had a closeness to Harold Weisberg and, and was able to talk to people that no one else had talked to. And, and just uh, was able to put together, uh, like I said a while ago, put together the whole crossword puzzle. And, um, and I'm going to put it in a book. Let people, uh, uh, well, yeah, since I was a car salesman at that time, I figured the first thing people were going to say, like they did to Harold Weisberg one time, or with a chicken farmer in Maryland, know about the Kennedy assassination. They're going to say about me, what would a car salesman know about the Kennedy assassination? So we'll let things fly and see where they land. Well, sir, I hope you will uh, come back on the show when your book is released. 
and we can discuss it even further. It's just been a, a treasure, a pure delight for me to be able to speak with you this afternoon. And I do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to spend it with us and to add testament to the real life tragedy that took place all those years ago, November 22nd, 1963. And I do thank you, sir, and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye now. All right. Bye. I want to thank James Tague for coming on the show tonight. His testament is very riveting, and what a knowledgeable fellow, eh? What a gentleman to come on. And uh, he uh, was succinct. He was apropos and was right there in Daly Plaza that day, November 22nd, 1963. Third person wounded by a bullet. Man, fate, eh? Imagine that, just going, getting stuck in a traffic jam. You get out of your car to see what the heck is going on. Next thing you know, the President of the United States is being assassinated right before your eyes. And on top of that, you're wounded as well. It takes some kind of courage and some kind of character. Chutzpah. There's a great word. Look it up, chutzpah, to come forward and tell that story. It is uh, very riveting, and I'm very honored to have folks like that come on the show, first-person witnesses. You know, it's the only place you're going to hear witnesses like this, because as I said before, we challenge the government directly, and they don't like that, to be responsible. They don't like when we ask them to be accountable. They don't like that at all. Even though we pay their damn salaries, they are accountable to us. They are responsible to us, not the other way around. Let's not forget that, and they shouldn't forget that either. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.